Well, let's turn our attention to God's Word, the ministry of the Word through the public reading of the Word. And if you're able, please stand with me in honor of God's Word, honor and respect. And the scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, is the Apostle Paul there writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is God's truth and God's word that I am reading to you, beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul writes there, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles once again to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at a couple of verses that we read just a little bit ago, Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20, members of God's family, Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Well, we just sang together in worship. How would you describe our relationship together, our relationship to God in that moment? Some congregations sing out of a very impersonal association with God. Others sing out of dismay before a reluctant God. Some sing to God hoping that such will excite them or entertain them. And still others sing with little to no thought of God. So how about you? Did you see there just a few minutes ago a large family who was gathered in front of our Father and our Savior and being energized by the Holy Spirit as we sang praises to them? And did you see our relationship to God as a deeply personal and tightly knit bond? Now, you might be thinking, John, you're asking an awful lot there. And and yes, that's true. But how can we get there? 
We do that by applying ourselves. So apply yourself to adopting the right mindset that Paul is here developing for us and and helping to develop our understanding about his church, about Jesus' church. In this last half of Ephesians 2, we're learning how Jesus formed his church. He and remember, as we've been looking at in the, in the previous weeks, he brought Gentile believers near to God. He created a new people out of both Jews and Gentiles. He reconciled both of them to God so that they would be at peace with God, with full access to God. So then, as a result of all of that, what has Christ achieved? Well, Paul next tells us here in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, that believers are now the one people of God in a relationship with Him, with God, that is marked by an intimacy greater even than a close family bond. Believers are now the one people of God in a relationship with God marked by an intimacy greater even than a close family family bond. And and I'm talking here in terms of our relationship to God, that bond. And of course, that relationship, that bond also should exist between each of us, which is what we find uh, and we've already seen here in Ephesians 2. And Paul's going to describe this people of God using three pictures. He's going to describe us as God's kingdom, God's family, and then as God's temple. And as he moves through each of those in these verses before us, we'll look at this week and next, each picture will increase the intimacy between us and God as we go from his kingdom to his family to his temple. And and to see that you see that, Think about how a family is much more a much more intimate association than just citizenship. So, you know, I can think about, okay, my neighbors around me, the ones that I know, they're all citizens. But my wife is my family. We're much closer than that. But then he's going to take us even more intimate than that, if you will, a closer bond than that when he's talking about us and God. Because as God's dwelling place, you can't get any closer than God living in us, you see. So that's how that's going to develop. And we'll see that over these two weeks. So Paul is developing our understanding of the church. The church should not be so impersonal as it sometimes is, that bond that we have with God. Our bond with each other and our bond with God should be close and deeply personal. For example, in Revelation 1, John saw Jesus walking among the lampstands. Do you remember what the lampstands represented? The churches. The picture is he saw Jesus walking among his churches. Not, and the picture was not just Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father and looking down on his churches, but he's walking among his churches. And then twice in the book of Revelation... Almost not quite as bookends, but near the beginning and then near the end, John saw something even more touching and personal than that. He saw God wiping the tears from the eyes of his people, our eyes. 
for all the griefs and sorrows that we had in this life, the trials and tribulations, God wiping the tears from our eyes. I mean, that is deeply personal. That is not the unconcerned God of deism. That is not the reluctant God of Catholicism. That's not the entertainment or the seeking God for entertainment of so many churches today. That's the the popular thing right now, is seeking God to excite us and entertain us. That's not the God that, that John tells us about. What we, what we see there in John's work in Revelation, we see the biblical God who desires closeness with His people. He desires to be close to His people. And you know, you hear a lot, a lot of things where on what's, what's most popular today is seeking God to entertain us or to excite us, you know. Um, and you'll hear people say, and I've heard this so many times, and they think it's like a slam dunk. They'll say, well, you know, I get really excited at a football game or a concert, you know, and church ought to be a lot like that. No, no, no. It should not. There's nothing about that that should be like church. Because in a football game, when we all leave... We're not still around the coach, and he doesn't really want to be around us. Okay? And that coach is not going to be in us. The same with you know, somebody, a band playing on in a concert. Okay, those are those are all that's entertainment. That is not a pattern or a picture for the people of God. God wants to be near us as a family and closer than that. It is a very personal thing, but it is also a very spiritual thing because where He's going to end up is us being God's temple. And that's profound. And a lot of times we, we kind of just you know breeze past these passages and we don't think more about what does that mean? If we're going to come together as a people, the, the people of God, if we are the temple of God, what does that say? What, how should we think? How should we act? And that is what Paul is developing for us here as he's moving us through Ephesians 2. And we're going to continue that, that theological foundation on into chapter 3, where as Paul, you know how he ends chapter 3. He tried to start chapter 3 with that, but he's like, okay, wait a minute, i got some more to tell you that this stuff is just mind-blowing. And he talks about the mystery. But then he gets back to it finally at the end of chapter 3. And he just bursts into praise. And one of those passages that we often will read as a doxology, uh, as, a, as a benediction at the end of the service, because it's just, I mean, it's, you know, focusing on God and praising Him for all that we have experienced in the Word and in our singing. So as we think about where we're at in Ephesians, uh, we'll kind of zoom back just a little bit here. So in the outline for where we're at, I'm not going to go through all of that, um, but 
in Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, Paul is reflecting on our corporate status, the change in our corporate status, particularly Gentiles. They were strangers, but now they are part of the people of God. And as he's doing that, we see throughout that whole passage how the closeness of God grows in the pictures he's painting for us. And so, coming down now to the passage we're looking at, verses 19 to 22, over these two weeks, we see believing Gentiles and Jews have been joined into the one people of God. Again, that was astounding. We don't get it as easily. We have to study, and what was it like for Jews and Gentiles, and how much did they hate one another? What was that hostility like? But... That was the most hostile relationship, human relationship. And he brought the two of them together into one people of God. And so as we break that down, we see three things. We have a new association. We are now citizens of God's kingdom. The first phrase in verse 19, a new association. We also have a new relationship. We are members of God's household. The rest of verse 19 And then a new purpose. We are to serve as God's dwelling place. His temple. There in verses 20 to 22. And we'll we'll only get started on uh, the foundation of that temple in verse 20 today. So let's unpack this. Number one, we have a new association. We are citizens of God's kingdom. A new association, we're citizens of God's kingdom. So, let me read the couple verses before our passage, just to remind us of the context. Verse 17, Ephesians 2, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So we have a common, a joint access to God the Father in the Spirit, this one Spirit. So Paul here is is drawing a fascinating conclusion as he says, so then, he's introducing this new passage. Based on everything he said so far, this is is what has resulted. First, he states it negatively, and so verse 19, the first part of it. So then, in conclusion, this is what's resulted from all that. You are no longer strangers and aliens. So he says it negatively. This is what you're not anymore. You used to be that, and now you're not. Now that we are in Christ, we're no longer strangers and aliens to God. We're no longer strangers and aliens to the redeemed of all the ages. And we're going to get to that. So we'll see that in a minute, but... We're not strangers and aliens. What are strangers and aliens? You know, so you look around, well, some of the people here look strange, you know, okay. That's not what he means. And aliens, he doesn't mean, you know, from outer space. A stranger is a non-citizen. They're a foreigner. And they're someone who is allowed to live in a country that's not their country. It's a foreign country to them, okay? And there may be a treaty in place, and often was in that day, where a country can, would say, okay, we'll allow people from other countries to come in and live here. And here are some revocable rights we give them, limited set of rights. 
while they live here, work here for on a temporary basis. This person is a temporary visitor. An alien, on the other hand, is a sojourner. They're living long term in a foreign country or foreign to them, uh, maybe even permanently. They are what we would call a resident alien. So they, they never become a citizen. They don't have the rights of citizenship for that country. They're a citizen of another country. <clears throat> but they've decided to live here and, and work and stay. We used to be that. We were, if you think about Related to God and also related to the redeemed of all the ages, we at one time before we were saved were foreigners. We weren't citizens, not citizens of God's kingdom, but now we are. So he said, states it positively, this new association. So verse 19 again, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, negatively, now positively, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. <clears throat> We're fellow citizens with the saints. Who are the saints? Well, what he has in mind here are all of the redeemed of all the ages. From Abel all the way to whomever will be the last person saved in the end. We don't know who that will be yet. <clears throat> it's all the redeemed of all the ages. Think here Hebrews 11, right? The, what we call the hall of faith. You know, do we have, you know, Abel and, you know, and, and you've got uh, Abraham and all those guys from the Old Testament in there. <clears throat> and a few surprisingly, you know, but these are the ones who by faith have, they believed in God. They trusted in him. They are this group of saints. We share citizenship with them. You remember at one time in Acts 22, where Paul is talking to a centurion, and the centurion was saying, you know, well, you know, I'm a Roman citizen, but I had to pay for mine. In other words, he wasn't born, he wasn't a natural-born citizen, we might say. Well, Paul one-upped him, you remember that. Paul says, I was born a citizen. And, and so that is the picture of what Paul is painting for us we didn't buy our way in. We were born a citizen. You're like, how did we get born? How were we born a citizen? By the new birth. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I like the picture that he used. He described it as if we have birth certificates to show that we belong, that we are citizens of God's kingdom. You know, so it's kind of like you, you get, you know, to heaven and, you know, and, they're asking you, okay, why should you know, let you in? Is well, what we pull out a birth certificate, or we might call it a new birth certificate, right? And that's the picture, and I think that's a good picture for us. That's what Paul is getting at here: that we are not natural-born, but spiritual-born citizens of God's kingdom. Now, Paul used a word, the word for citizen here. And, and he, he joined another word to it, a, a preposition, which means together with. And so he's saying you're citizens together with these saints, the redeemed of all the ages. And, and so on the slide, so you can see 
that well, who he's talking to is the church of Jesus Christ that are both Jews and Gentiles together. They are the church. And then a big plus sign, together with. And that's what he's doing when he, he uses a word that meant mem, uh, citizen, but together with, and he puts those together. So you've got... <clears throat> The redeemed of all the ages. So we are together with them. This is one big group. These are the people, the brothers and sisters that, you know, I, I talked about us as, as this big family. They were singing to God. Well, the family's even bigger than that. Because there are congregations of our brothers and sisters scattered all over the world that either were singing and some that are going to be singing a little bit later today to our Father as a family. But one day, all of us and all those who have preceded us in death and those who will come after us, we're all going to be together one day around the throne of God. We're going to be singing to our Father, our Savior, through the Holy Spirit. We're going to be praising them as a, those who are citizens of heaven. This is the opposite of that word, strangers. So we had been strangers, now we're citizens. And one thing more to say about the citizenship. Remember that right now our citizenship is in heaven from which, as Paul said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we wait for Him to bring the kingdom when He returns. Number two, we have a new relationship. We are members of God's household. We have a new relationship. We're members of God's household. Again, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So that's the second thing he says positively. We negatively, we're strangers and aliens. Now we're citizens and members of God's household. And do you see how the, the picture is getting more intimate as I said earlier, you know, you, you, your neighbors might be citizens of the United States, but they're not as close to you as the people that live in your household, in your family. And throughout all of this, I hope you see the oneness that Paul is getting at, the oneness in the church, because he's building toward some, some points he's going to make and he's going to call us to later in the book. But... <clears throat> The oneness comes out again here in this idea of being in the same household, and it's God's household on top of that. It just makes it even more wonderful. We're all members of the same household. We're all members of God's family. This term for household referred to the people who lived in that same household unit, uh, or you could think of them as you know, your kin, your kinfolk. They're the people, when it's used literally, who are related to you by blood. Paul used it figuratively for those who are part of one spiritual family, part of a one spiritual household. This is the opposite of that word, alien. As members of God's household, we share the close bond of a family. This is... God and us. And there are times where when I meditate on some of these themes, I, I like to picture myself in this large household. Remember, Paul uses that image. And, you know, as we're just servants or slaves in this household, 
You know, we're not the owner of the house. We're just slaves in that house. But one of the things that, that it occurred to me as I was working on this this week is that my picture was incomplete. Because I, th- I thought of a big household and, and, you know, you guys are in there and we're all servants and, you know, and we, we help each other and, and that sort of thing. And, and we're just all serving. But it occurred to me that I left someone out, actually the most important person, God. Well, it's not real comfortable to think that that God is physically inside your house, right? I mean, that is like, okay, we would act so much more differently, right? You know, if God was in our house, I mean, He is, but you know what I mean. You know, you can see Him and... Well, I, I need to adjust that picture that I use in my meditation sometimes. God is there too. And that's what Paul is trying to get at. That's what we've been trying to drive home in our, under, in our study of Ephesians 2. The closeness that we have with God. We talked about him previously, remember, as that, that closeness of a, of a really good friend, an intimate friend. Now that, that continues to grow in intimacy and closeness with this picture of household. We saw earlier in verse 15, God has made Jews and Gentiles into one new man. That's the church. This is a a new organism in Jesus Christ, which began at Pentecost. We are all joined into one new household. And this is broader than the concept of Israel. Why? Because when we're talking about the saints, we're talking about saints even before Israel existed. So remember I mentioned Abel and Abraham. Think about Noah and Job and a lot of these other people and then godly women as well that are all, you know, this is a big picture that Paul is drawing on. This is the one people of God, the one family of God. Number three, we have a new purpose. We have a new purpose to serve as God's dwelling place, to be his temple. And we're going to get to that more specifically next time. But this is what he's talking about, beginning in verse 20, is the temple. It's the same group. It's us. It's the church. He's talking about, he talked about us from the, the perspective of God's kingdom, that we're citizens, God's family, that we're members of it. And now, we're His temple. Which really is mind-blowing. As He shifts the image now to God's temple, His picture becomes even more intimate. So, citizens, then family members... Now God's in us, living in us. Verse 20, let me read verses 20 to 22. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we're going to first talk about the foundation of that temple. And and we won't quite finish that today, uh, but we'll get to it next time. I want to save a lot of that for next time. So the foundation of a building 
it has to be the first part that you build. Okay, so you don't you, know, you may have somebody a contractor that's that chomping at the bits you know to put in the cabinetry. We don't have a foundation. No, you've got to have the foundation first before you work on walls, roof, interior, any of that. You've got to have the foundation. And God is the one who's understood here as the builder of that foundation. He did the work of laying the foundation and then building the church on it. And he says that that foundation, what he has built, it's actually people. New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. They are the ones that make up the foundation of this new spiritual temple. What is an apostle? We're only going to go into a little bit of this. When we get into chapter 4 and he brings it up as a gift, we're going to go into more detail because there's other uh, ways we can understand or other um, people who were apostles in a different sense in the early church. But an apostle here, what he's talking about, is someone who has been sent out under the authority of Jesus Christ to carry out a particular mission. And, and what Paul is thinking about in this passage about apostles is that small group of men who witnessed the risen Christ. Okay? There are others who would come after, but still in that New Testament era, who served as apostles, but not in this sense. They were more like church planters, if you will, and they had not witnessed the risen Christ. What he's, who he's thinking about are notably, particularly the twelve. And you remember in Acts 1, they had to replace Judas. And then you've got James, the Lord's brother, Galatians 1.19, puts him in that group with the apostles. <clears throat> and then you have Paul. And a number of passages where he introduces himself as Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ. Or think in terms of 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, where he says, The signs of a true apostle were worked among you. So he's saying, you know, I, I am one of those guys. Even though, as he said, I was you know, late in time. How were they used to lay the foundation of the church? Well, one of the things that they did was they laid out for us the sanctioned order and practices of this new organism, the church. Through them, the church was established and the church began to grow. Also, they were under the authority of Jesus Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit to either write the new, what's, what would become the New Testament Scriptures or authorize those New Testament Scriptures. Think here, Luke, writing Luke and Acts. He was not an apostle with the capital A. Okay? He had not seen the risen Christ. Why do we accept his book? Well, it's because the apostles authorized it. And that's true of, of a few other of the New Testament books. They, these apostles, delivered that body of truth that's in the New Testament called the gospel, or some places called the faith. And let's look at a few key passages that talk about that them delivering that to us. So 1 Corinthians 11.23, and we're going to use this a little bit later here in a few minutes for the Lord's Supper, but... Something you're very familiar with, but I want to kind of it to kind of be a little alarm that goes off when when we do use it, and you remember this that the apostles delivered truth to us. 
and practice. Here, this is one of the practices that they received from the Lord and then delivered to us. Okay, we have we only have two ordinances, and he's talking about this particular one, the Lord's table. We do it only because they told us to do it. Okay. Paul says, 11.23, 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That's an apostle. He received it directly from the Lord and then delivered it to the church. There's only a small group of men that did that. And what what was it? That the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed took bread. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Okay? So then go to 1 Corinthians 15. It wasn't just... The, the sanctioned practices of the church. It was also the gospel, the truth. And, and when I'm talking about that, here in verse chapter 15, we're going to talk about the gospel as that specific uh, truth on how a person is saved, by what are they saved, what, they must, what must they believe in. But also the gospel can refer to, as we're going to see in a minute with Jude, this whole idea, this whole body of doctrine that they delivered to us. And that is the gospel, okay? So, First uh, Corinthians uh, 15, in verse 3, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. See, the same thing that he said in, back in chapter 11, but it's a different thing he's delivering here. That Christ died for our, script, our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and appeared to, this, to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And so, there again, Paul received this from the Lord. He didn't get it from anybody else. He talks about that in Galatians. I didn't get this from the apostles, the other apostles, because I am an apostle. I got it directly from Jesus. Uh, go over to Jude, verse 3. We recently went through that. As Kevin took us through Sunday school. So for some of us uh, adults anyway, very familiar with that right now. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for what? The faith. Which was what? Once for all delivered to the saints. Now Jude isn't saying that he delivered it. The apostles. He's talking about what the apostles had done. They had delivered this to the saints. They received it from the Lord and then delivered it to the saints. And one more. Uh, Hebrews. So keep going. Or go back to the left a little bit. Hebrews chapter 2. And this passage is why we know that Paul didn't write Hebrews. Even though it, it was probably somebody heavily influenced by Paul. It sounds a lot like him. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So here is somebody, a first generation uh, Christian, receiving this from the apostles. It was confirmed to us by those who heard, the apostles. God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying, I'm not an apostle with a capital A. I'm not one of those few, that small handful of guys. I don't carry their authority. He had authority as a minister, but not on the apostolic or as an apostle. But the point is, is that the apostles, one of the chief things they did is that they received truth from the Lord and the practices, the approved practices of the church, and they delivered that to the church, to the saints. Now, what is, an, what is a prophet? 
Now, if you're like me, your mind immediately goes back to like Isaiah and you know Elijah and people like that, right? That's not what he's talking about. A prophet, Old or New Testament, is someone who received a direct revelation from God. That's what a prophet is. Okay, that's what sets them apart. That's what their ministry is. They received a message directly from God. His messages could either be by mouth, Elijah, Elisha, or in writing, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you know, the twelve minors, um, Daniel. There are two basic purposes for their messages that they received from God. And both of these are received from God. Now, I know sometimes in reform circles we talk, you'll hear, they'll refer to, to preachers as prophets. And I don't agree with that. I know what they're trying to say. I get that. They're, they're saying we're doing that second purpose. Yes, but we're not receiving it directly from God. We're getting it from the Word, right? It's already been delivered. So, but, the, you know, uh, people I have cut my teeth on, um, uh, a lot of wonderful material, but two purposes. They receive a message directly from God, on the one hand, to tell the future. It, we sometimes call it predictive. Okay, They're predicting the future. And, or we sometimes call it foretelling. You know, in other words, like forehand, you know, telling it before. <clears throat> so it's predictive. There's a second way they receive a message from God directly to warn, edify, comfort, encourage. That's prescriptive rather than predictive. Okay, they're not predicting the future in those moments. They are <clears throat> ministering in some way other than predictive. It's prescriptive. They're prescribing this is what you need to do now uh, to repent or something like that. We call that forth-telling. Okay, they're speaking forth. They're, they're giving this message they got from God and, and telling it to the recipient. The key distinction is that a New Testament prophet received a direct message from God for the good of the church. An Old Testament prophet still received a direct message from God for the good of Israel. These, he's talking about, are New Testament prophets for the good of the church. These were contemporaries with the apostles. He mentions them here, again in chapter 3, verse 5. These are people that lived at the same time. There's often overlap between the two. Um, think about John, for example. Uh, and a lot of these guys were both apostle and prophet. John was an apostle. He gave us the gospel. He gave us three letters. But he also gave us what is largely predictive, the book of Revelation. Okay, So you've got the first three chapters that are telling us this is, what I, this is that fourth telling. Okay, here, churches, you need to repent and so on. But then chapters 4 on, I know there's debate about this, but we can talk about that later. But from 4 on is, is predictive. It's largely predictive. And that John is doing both of those there, as we find other people in the New Testament doing, who are both apostles and prophets. But another reason why these are New Testament prophets and not Old Testament prophets is that they have to come after the cornerstone. And we won't get to that today. But if you know anything about the way the buildings were made, built back then, the cornerstone was the very first thing you did. Because it told you exactly where we're going to build the building now, the found, where we're going to lay the foundation. It's going to, to establish the square of the building so that it's in, in square and everything. <clears throat> so these had to happen after the cornerstone. And he's going to tell us that Jesus is the cornerstone. So it had to be after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. 
So he's talking about New Testament prophets. Now, there's a, a warning about that as it relates to this foundation. This giving of the scriptures by the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, it's so important, it's so key that we need to heed this warning that John Stott gives us as he draws this, obviously, from what the New Testament says. He warns that the New Testament scriptures are the church's foundation documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being, being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions, subtractions, or modifications offered by teachers who claim to be apostles or prophets today. The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets and which are now preserved in the New Testament scriptures. And that is why the New Testament is so important and why we have to heed it and why we only heed it. There are other good books and documents out there that are very helpful in Christianity, but they're not the scriptures. Okay? And, and so we can, we can update them. You think about Westminster Confession, a great confession. Okay. Well, I think everybody here probably is a Baptist. And so, you know, there's a part that we can't agree with in Westminster. Okay. So what did, what did they do? They modified it. Okay. And came up with the London Baptist Confession. Okay. And they modified it. So, you know, as they kind of tweak it. We've done the same thing with our church's doctrinal statement. We modified it. Um, because those are not the scriptures. They don't carry that authority. Well, Paul has a lot more to say about the foundation, namely teaching about the cornerstone, Jesus. And we're going to come back to that next time. He also has a, a lot more to say about that temple that is built on that foundation. And our part, which is really intriguing, our part in that temple. And so but I want to save that for next time instead of just trying to rush through it all. At this point, I'd like to challenge us to take to heart what we are learning about the church. Do you, as part of the church, worship God in a deeply personal way? Now, I know we all have our moments and days, right? Where we're like, wow, I just went through all four of our songs and my mind was off on tomorrow at work, right? That happens. But what's the norm for you? Do you worship God typically in a deeply personal way where you picture us as that big family, but we are there before God spiritually, and one day it will be literally as well, but He is there. We're singing to Him and, and he's not, like I said, that, that reluctant God of, of some parts of Christianity. He's not the deistic God who's off somewhere and doesn't really care what happens. You know, he wound up the clock and let it go. It's not that. And neither is he there to excite us, entertain us. Do you think of him as the father who loved you? Loves you, gave his son to die for you. And are you worshiping that Savior who did die for you? 
and know that He calls us friend. And here we've seen He's also called us not only citizens of His kingdom, members of His family, and we are those that He's building into a temple that He indwells. Do you worship God that way? Is it deeply personal? When you're worshiping, are you in your mind picturing God and and you're singing to Him? Is it deeply personal? Do you does your worship reflect a close relationship with God? Think about that. Does your worship reflect a close relationship to God?